Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Shane Brown, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at Oregon State University in beautiful Corvallis, Oregon. Shane has been researching difficult concepts in engineering and has some ideas about how to approach this research that he'll be sharing with us today. Um, Shane, welcome to Research Briefs and the second season of Research Briefs. I'm glad you could be here. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, It'll be fun to talk with you, Ruth, about concepts because you know an awful lot about them also. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure we can have a hearty discussion about concepts regardless of setting. So I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, To provide a bit of an introduction to listeners, could you tell me a little bit about your pathway into engineering education? The short version, so that I don't give you the long version, is that uh, I I got a PhD at Oregon State University in civil engineering, but I agreed with the school ahead of time that I wanted to do research in engineering education before I started that PhD. And I think because I was an undergraduate student there and knew people, they sort of could like understand the way that that might function. And the school head, excuse me, department chair, had some interest in engineering education anyway. So uh, it was just based on the idea that I wanted a PhD for sure, but I didn't want it to be in like normal engineering research. That's not the right way to say it. <laughs> Whoops. And, uh, and then I just found a place that would support that. Mm-hmm. And um, why, so you ended up researching social capital, if I'm remembering right. Mm-hmm. How were you sparked by that idea that you thought that was something you wanted to investigate? That's a good question. Um, My department chair's name was Ken Williamson, and he's the one who facilitated me getting a PhD with with engineering education research. He said, essentially said, I'll support that, but I want you to do your research on social capital. And he handed me the book Trust by Francis Fukuyama, which is a pretty dense, uh, extended theoretical discussion of that concept and said you got to sort of frame something in this space for your dissertation. Well, that's an easy way to go about it. It sure is. It was clear as day that's what I needed to do. (laughs) Yes. So conceptual changes and conceptual understanding is your major focus now. How how did that develop? Uh, When I completed my PhD, I went to work as a non-tenure track faculty at Washington State University, and I had a few years to think about what research I really, really wanted to do, and I had some interest in, uh, in, in social capital still, but it's a big, diverse topic, mm-hmm. and it was hard for me to pin down exactly which part of that I was interested in, because there's social network aspects, there's normative aspects, and I just had an increased interest in student learning. And why, why do some students struggle? Why are mm-hmm. other students successful? Why, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I tended to try to think of kind of concepts 
like conservation of energy and apply those across courses. So I just always had this interest in learning and that was an opportunity to kind of reinvent myself uh, as I transitioned to a tenure track job at WSU. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know from knowing you that your, your ideas about what conceptual understanding is and how to determine it have evolved. And I personally think that evolution is really fascinating. So that's kind of the thing that I wanted you to share with the listeners of a little bit of the, um, the biography of the, the timeline of how did you start thinking about conceptual understanding. You're, you're in your classroom, you're teaching, you're seeing some your students struggling and you're wondering why. How did you first think about this and how are you thinking about it now? Uh, I would say I first thought about it in an academic way in uh, my early years as a tenure track faculty when I was trying to figure out which part of learning I would want to investigate. And when you talk to people in our field about learning, then conceptual something is a pretty common topic and it mm -hmm. comes up in a bunch of different ways. So I think first maybe I learned about concept inventories and thought in some ways those were a strange device to kind of enforce so much judgment on students because the assumption was if you're not good at these, then you must not be good at mm -hmm. school maybe, you must not be good at concepts, you maybe you're not a good engineer. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of thought on how all of that could come with a set of multiple choice questions. And I don't mean to say there's no value in those, but I thought deeply about those ideas. Um, there's a whole bunch of different language we use in our field that I was exposed to in those early years. So there's conceptual understanding, there's concepts, there's concept inventories, there's conceptual change, there's all the language around the theories of conceptual change. And I w found them very incongruent so at first I was thinking, well, maybe conceptual change is just change in performance on a concept inventory. Mm -hmm. And then I read a paper by Chi and her categorical theory of conceptual change. I said, well, that seems a lot different than responses to a concept inventory. Right, right. So it was, uh, I think to answer your question, it was sort of seeing all the rich activity in our field related to concepts seemed like a real nice entry point to learning. And it was amplified by, I think, engineering faculties' uh, affection towards concepts as being so important. And just thinking about why do we think those are so important? And why do we think that if you know those things that everything will be sort of okay because you can transfer and, and do that? So not only was it just interesting hearing people talk, there's a lot of holes um, due to the different ways people talked about it and the assumptions they make when they talked about them in those ways. Um, and then the final piece is, it, I spent some time thinking about the contextuality of concepts, for lack of a better term. We did a little study where we interviewed uh, faculty, engineering faculty and practicing engineers and asked them about transportation concepts. And one of the things we asked them about was sight distance, which is just how far down the road you could see. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Faculty would use sort of textbook answers. It's how far down the road you could see. Practicing engineers would say, it's how far down the road you could see, 
but it's not, that's not really what is important. Is it night? Is it day? Are there obstructions? Are you going over a hill? Are you going around a corner? And so context was important to them more so than the concepts. Mm -hmm. And that led me into this space of, well, maybe, for example, the way that concepts are presented in an inventory is a way of presenting them, but that may not be universally applicable uh, depending on what you're trying to accomplish with that concept. So. And I know you also had practicing engineers take concept inventories, right? Mm-hmm. And what did you find out? We, uh, a little self-promotion here, we just published a paper in the Journal of Engineering Education on this, uh, finally, which is what all faculty say, <laughs> I think. And we found that in almost all cases, students perform better than practicing engineers on concept inventory questions. We also found that the categorization of concepts, that sometimes we use factor analysis to see how the concepts cluster, right. was different for engineers than for students. And we think that might be based on the interpretation of aspects of the problems that are different than the original developers intended. Mm -hmm. um, and we found we found in some cases that engineers will do much better than students on particular questions, but we think it's because something resonates with the engineer about the meaning of that question. So for example, uh, uh, there's a concept inventory question on the fluid mechanics concept inventory about water flowing through a pipe, and they talk about a smooth pipe. And engineers know that there's no such thing as a frictionless pipe. So they interpret that as low friction. Students interpret that as no friction. So there's a big discrepancy in their performance because of the way that small idea was interpreted by them. Mm -hmm. So in engineering education, we're often saying that we're preparing students to be professional engineers or practicing engineers. And you're finding that, wow, we give them these tests that supposedly measure their understanding, but the practicing engineers can't perform well on that test. It kind of blows that whole assumption out of the water that we're really preparing them to be in practice. It's sort of the, the idea that you have just presented is the reason why I wanted to do this study is to um, begin to question the role that concepts play in applied settings. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that your interpretation is, is a reasonable one, and I'm very glad that you ask about it. In my discussions with sort of experts in the field, there is a contingent that would argue that just because they can't perform well, engineers, practicing engineers, can't perform well on that question, doesn't mean that they don't know that concept just that it's an invisible part of brain operations that is not part of their conscious process. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably a fair argument, but we've interviewed people, I'm sorry, we've interviewed practicing engineers about their understanding of these concept inventory questions, and they frequently say things like, that's an academic problem. I don't think about this in that way. I haven't seen it represented in that way since I was in school. I'm going to have to go get my textbook and sort of a long list of that the context matters. Mm -hmm. So I would sort of deny the idea 
that it is part of some invisible cognitive processes, I think that conceptual understanding is very contextual. And so I think it is a little problematic that we may use concept inventories or even more broadly, academic representations of knowing to say that those are the pathway to being good in this discipline. Mm -hmm. So when you say context matters, you gave a couple examples about that of the engineers thinking about um, sight distance and, and is it raining, is it daytime, what's happening? Are there, can you say a little bit more though about other kinds of context that seem to matter from what you're finding? Um, I can. Uh, we did a, and, and these results will come from an ethnographic study we did of the engineering workplace to look at concepts related to roundabout design. And we found that there were several um, ways that of that uh, setting, of that workplace setting that influenced concepts and that sort of were the life of concepts in that particular application. And so for example, um, we found that concepts were relegated to sort of non-human applications. So there's like software applications. So you may not have to know certain concepts because they're so embedded in these software applications that you um, either don't know them or you know them in a way that's represented very specifically within that software. Mm -hmm. And you might argue, well, you have to know the concepts, it can't be a black box, and that's a sort of naive way of thinking about it. They have a way of knowing it, it's just really related to that particular application. Mm -hmm. We also found, uh, for example, there's a meeting with 10 people in the room talking about sight distance for a roundabout, and they were worried about some obstructions. And in that hour-long meeting, nobody used the word sight distance. They drew pictures, they had diagrams, they had figures, they talked about equations, they talked, they put the ruler on the drawing and said that's the distance between here and there. So even when we pick a word we think would be universally sort of uh, meaningful and utilized by a setting, it's not always true. Mm -hmm. So they, they have multiple complex representations of that concept depending on the setting. Uh, we also found that the meaning is socially negotiated over time in relation to a particular application. So sight distance to this project meant something kind of different to, uh, for example, a highway project where a speed for a speed limit change or maybe there's deer crossing or something like that. You would think about sight distance in that setting much differently than you would in a roundabout design. Now, I recall, I think, some earlier work too that you did with looking at how the problem itself is represented. Is it a picture? Is it a line drawing? And I think you found some some differences there even too, didn't you? We did. Um, <clears throat> the best example I could think of on the spot is two of the fluid mechanics concept inventory questions are a pipe expansion or contraction. So there's four versions. There's one where it goes from a bigger pipe to a smaller pipe horizontal. There's another one where it goes from a smaller pipe to a bigger pipe, also horizontal, and then those same two applications in a vertical setting. And they ask you, how does the pressure and the velocity change as water flows through there? Um, and the answer is related to Bernoulli's equation, is that you have three forms of energy, elevation, pressure, and velocity, and if one goes up, the other one must go down. So for example, in the horizontal pipe, if there's a, an expansion, 
then the velocity has to go down because you're moving the same amount of water in a bigger space. And if the velocity goes down, the pressure goes up. That's weird a little bit because you might think, well, the water has a lot more space now. It must feel less pressure and be pretty happy about that. Mm -hmm. So to get back to your question, we ask engineers about that and a large percentage of them get that problem wrong. And they say things like, well, the pressure goes down because there's more space and there's more space for the water to occupy. And they don't go back to the fundamental idea of conservation of energy. That's compelling. We are currently sort of postulating maybe that problem has no significance to pipe designers because that's who we ask this mm -hmm. question of. Mm -hmm. um, we are suggesting that you might design a pipeline system to have a maximum pressure of 100 PSI, but the pressure that's in that pipeline might be 30 at any given time, so you're not even close to the capacity of the system. Yeah. So when you show them a contraction that's vertical, horizontal, I think the answer is who cares? Yeah. It just doesn't matter It's to never me. gonna happen. Right, and it'd be compelling, as I think about this, if we could pick applications to ask them about that do matter, then would they go back to the fundamentals and get the right answer? Mm -hmm. Is it really more about the, rash, the, the importance of getting it right or is it the importance of the actual concept? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one question I'd like to ask too that I know I hear people struggle with as uh, when they're starting to do the research is like picking a theoretical framework. Um, and I, I know in um, conceptual understanding there's the popular frameworks and they're the not as well heard of frameworks and um, I know you've negotiated between that a bit. Do you, could you speak to that a bit about how you decided on frameworks and what your reaction was and just how you use frameworks in your research? I would love to. I'll start off by saying uh, to all you listeners out there, <laughs> if we mischaracterize theoretical frameworks, uh, please don't comment because there's <laughs> a lot of different ways of thinking about a theoretical framework. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> I would also say that there is, a, there is a lot of dissension in the cognitive science field about the different theoretical frameworks for conceptual change. My short and semi-flippant answer is we just need to spend more time thinking about all of those mm -hmm. because there's been a, a group of people who have done some research in conceptual change but even within that group, there's not a lot of articles in our uh, notable publications, um, you know, all the journals of engineering education that try to understand these theories in our setting. Mm -hmm. So um, that didn't exactly answer your question. I, I struggled a little bit because all of the three prominent theories, and there's more than that, so there's the theory, cheese theory, DeCessis theory, and Vosnia-Dews theory. I consider those to be the three big ones. Are, <clears throat> are unbelievably complex and have hundreds of pages written on each of them and are a little bit uh, inconsistent over time. And when I say inconsistent, I think they're all trying to sort of make their theories more robust mm -hmm. and think about them. So I don't mean yeah, they're- Yeah, they're evolving as well. Yeah, that's a better way of, of saying it. So it's hard to pick three big theories to pick one and then pick like kind of which version you want to work with 
and then which subtlety or aspect of that version you want to work with in your study, which is why I think we, we would just benefit from starting to do that. So I just picked one that happened to be uh, really obvious to me that it was a relationship between knowing and the setting. And that's Bosnia Dew's framework theory because she talks about, as an example, the presence of a globe in a classroom setting and the effect that can have on students' beliefs about the flatness of the earth. So going back to our earlier conversation, uh, me having the approach that context is important, that resonated with me mm -hmm, really well. Mm -hmm. I don't want to infer that DeSessa or Chi don't account for context. It just happens that that application of context I found particularly resonant in thinking about people's understanding in the relation to their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, what has been the reaction for you choosing a framework that isn't quite as popular in engineering education? Uh, here's my silly part, and then I'll get to a, a better okay. part. My students don't care because they haven't heard of any of them until I <laughs> tell them to start reading them. So they're great to talk to about it because yes. there's no defiance. Um, there's a little bit of academic posturing that sort of has occurred in um, conferences and submissions to journals about that's not the right one. You should pick this other one. Uh, there's been some kind of hallway discussions along the same lines. You know, maybe that's not the best one. I would go back to the idea of if we had 50 publications in engineering education that looked at different pieces of these theories, that maybe is the time to start beating people on the head a little bit. Mm -hmm. But when we're just start trying to explore this space, I'm not sure the confrontational approach is the best one to mm -hmm. do. I think like well-reasoned arguments amongst people are quite helpful to our field. That's a little different than saying, why'd you choose that one? I don't think it's very good. Right, right. So one of the whole, one of my aspirations with research briefs is to help people when they feel like they're being coerced into groupthink maybe, and it's like, well, you gotta use this method because everybody does, or you've gotta use this framework because everybody does to be able to have the courage to resist that a bit. Mm -hmm. So what might your life experience with having that happen to you, what contribution do you think that could make to help inspire people to be able to withstand something like that if they encounter it themselves? I'm a ultra pragmatist, so I would say uh, as a, being surviving in our field, you want to think about where you are in your career and the things you need to accomplish to get tenured and promoted. And, and I don't mean necessarily be like subjugated to all the whims of that process, but I mean if you can more, more easily write a paper or two and do some nice contributions to our field within the normative paradigm, I think that's probably an okay idea. Um, I think it, it would become problematic if you, uh, I think the saying is you cut off your hand to spite your face. If you make those argumentations to say, I'd rather use this approach, and that leads to you not being productive in a way that's valued by our, uh, by academia, that's problematic. It's mm -hmm. career suicide. So I think people need to be real conscious of what they need to get done in that time in their life. 
and I try to, as hopefully an almost full professor, realize that I'm in a position where I get to talk about these things quite freely, take a position, feel confident about it, but I didn't feel this way when I was the first couple years into my uh, academic career. Mm -hmm. I would also say, I hope that um, as a field, we can start to sort of embrace these uh, uh, sort of seemingly defiant views. Like, I don't want to do that thing. I'd rather take this approach and have more space for that to occupy because I think it's healthier when, when maybe you're not as constrained by what everybody's telling you to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a fine, it's a fine line that we walk in terms of kind of survival, I think, in terms of uh, being an accepted part of the, kind of the culture that we're within and then also hanging on to our identity and what mm -hmm. we believe in and what we think the right approach mm -hmm. is. So one question I want to ask you, and I know this is a really hard question and you weren't prompted to be thinking about it, but absolutely I get your idea and concur with it of, you know, don't, don't be defiant to be defiant, particularly as you're starting out your career, it's likely to have a bad effect. <laughs> but then there is that place of um, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. So how can, how do you think you know if you're being, if you're uncomfortable with a particular method or theory just because you're being stubborn or because it's really not productive for you. Do you have a sense of how people could think about what that difference might be? I love um, your question. Uh, I have, um, even as more so in recent years, have encouraged my students that their sort of pathway to privilege and recognition within our field is just knowing an awful lot about the thing that they're arguing about. So uh, to answer your question, I think if a student wanted to argue over a conceptual change theory or about a qualitative methodology, the first thing they need to do is just go read, 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 be smart, uh, get in engaging conversations with people know, who know so they can really be up to speed on that because mm -hmm. your, your worst position is not knowing and just uh, coming from it from an uneducated view. And a graduate student, one of the positive aspects of being a graduate student is you have time to just go read and get smart about something. So I would say that's uh, maybe, maybe one of the most important things you could do is become knowledgeable. I think you could also um, you know, be a very evaluative of your own kind of approach. So you could, um, if we take positions of advocacy that's different than positions of intellectualness and then I'll be an advocate for particular reasons but I'll also be honest with the people I'm talking to that there's pros and cons of each of these approaches. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of uh, overview, uh, my overview answer would be you, you just have to be really up to speed on the arguments that are embedded in your approach versus this other one because you if for example, if you run into somebody at a conference and they have a differing opinion and they start to say you're doing it the wrong way, you need to be able to reason through with them and maybe ideally you've read some papers and thought about some things that they haven't and then you have a little bit of position of authority on that thing. Mm -hmm. 
So you just really do your homework about it, think about it deeply, have good reasons for your arguments, yes. and kind of take it from there. And again, check yourself and say, am I just being stubborn? Am I being just, uh, you know, want to be rebellious? Or do I have a, a, a good logical reason behind why I think this approach is better? Or maybe this theory works better for a framework than theory B does for me. Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think also um, sort of recognizing that we're in our, in, in our field, much like many others, the, the theories that are presented to us, like for motivation or conceptual change or self-efficacy, are somebody's ways of thinking about it. And there's never going to be a black and white phenomenon where one is obviously perfect and the other one will never work. So it's just a, it's all gray space that you just have to sort of get committed to, feel good about it, do your best with that thing. Um, I think sometimes people in any sciencey field get beholden to a particular set of theories just because that feels good and then the, the new people in that field think, well, it's very binary. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that one's better than the other. Right. Whereas for that expert, that clarity came from years and years of thinking about it and maybe personal advocacy and funding and those sorts of things. So I also think it's just recognizing that it's not the best one, it's just one that will work, that happens to be somebody's reasonable interpretation of a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Shane, is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners about your work or? Uh, one final thing is I, I would be excited if uh, there were many new young scholars in our field who would begin to explore this big space of conceptual whatever, conceptual change, understanding, knowing, learning, uh, because I think there's a lot of opportunities to do so that are helpful to students, they're related to normative ways of knowing, which are related to power and privilege, which is something that's very important for our field, and certainly there's a lot to be done related to our goals of preparing students to be good engineers in the workplace. So I think we need more people thinking smartly about this to make, uh, to, to, to be useful to the students, which is really what, what we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. here. Thank you. I've, as always, I've enjoyed talking to you. Hopefully that comes across here. <laughs> This was a wonderful opportunity and I very much appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you, Ruth. Thank you. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.